I know many sentiments have already been expressed today about thankfulness and gratefulness for each of us to be able to come together on this Lord's Day morning. Sunday has, of course, ever since the Christian era began, been an exceedingly special day. Today, as you and I are assembled on this first Sunday in the month of March this year, we're thankful that God has seen fit to carry us through this previous week and that we can set foot for this week in a way that's positive and in accordance to the Word of God, offering our worship unto Him today. Speaking of worship, one of the things that we're going to give our full attention to this morning is really the music of worship. The characteristics that the Word of God shares with us attached to that powerful and wonderful subject. On this slide behind me, you'll notice the introductory one invites your consideration to this. Worship has always, not just in the New Testament era, but has always been exceedingly important. We could go back as far as the days of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4 and see what is involved when worship is right and when it's not. God looked with favor upon what Abel offered, but He did not look with favor upon what Cain offered. And of course, the consequence of that was in fact very dreadful in many ways. But today, you and I live so many centuries this side of Cain and Abel, and yet, is worship still something that's regulated? Is it still that God does not accept certain things connected to worship? If that's so, we surely would want to know what it is. You'll notice on this opening slide that I suspect that one of the main things for which the church is known is those people assemble and they offer worship. Well, today you and I are in the midst of that even as we speak at this particular moment. I suspect that the single greatest controversy that has troubled the Restoration Movement is the subject of our discussion this morning. You know, we would all agree there have been over the course of the years a number of issues that have arisen and caused brethren to have controversies, and it has led to divisiveness. You can name several of them with me, but I suspect none of them has risen to the stature, to the height of the one that we're discussing today. What about the employment of a mechanical instrument of music in worship? Is it lawful? If it is, why don't we use it? But if it's not, then we need to recognize pretty powerfully why it's not. Because the reason is just as important, you see, as our particular appreciation or approach to it. Today, we're going to develop one verse. It was the one that Brother John read a moment ago in Ephesians 5, verse 19. If you'd be turning to that passage, we're going to invest the entirety of the lesson as a consideration of development of that single passage. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse number 19. As you're turning to that particular location, may I say as we begin our study this morning that the subject again has been one of great moment. I'll develop with you some historical observations over the course of the lesson. I hope as I share them, you'll be a bit reminded of a place that this discussion has had. But first, what about some opening remarks? I thought it wise to at least couch our discussion with some preliminary remarks, if I may call it that, that will in fact move us into the fullness of our discussion here in just a moment. It all begins with those observations that you can easily see. 
music of wor- in worship is important. Not only is it something that's important, it has been throughout the ages in regard to the church. It is not merely something of interest over the last few hundred years. The Bible speaks about the music of worship, but it's very specific and careful as to the nature and the character of that music. We shall certainly strive to understand and apply that thought even today. Could I at least, though, point out a few things? You may at least at this point be in the impression, well, here's the preacher just talking about particular choices and decisions that certain denominational groups have made and that this is what they choose to do, but yet the church of Christ does not, nor has it ever. I hope that you will not fall completely into that for perhaps some pictures I'm now about to show you. I'm going to speak a little bit about each of these as we go. Now, I recognize full well, as I found that picture, probably the details are a little too small for you to fully appreciate, so may I point out some of them to you. A Baptist congregation in the city of Nashville, so roughly 80 miles from here, you'll notice as they, in fact, advertise and speak about the nature of their worship. Could I draw your attention first? There is a well-recognized choir dressed differently and, in effect, presented in such a way before the particular audience, if you will. But you'll notice down to the far left in that picture, there are at least three mechanical instruments of music being played. A flute, a piccolo, and a saxophone. Now, I don't know what else may be off screen to the left, but at the least you'll notice there is no issue at all in that congregation with the employment of mechanical instruments of music together with a choir or what might be otherwise. What about another picture? This time, a Methodist congregation, again in Nashville, Tennessee. Not very far from here in terms of geography at least. If I could draw your attention again, you can see the back, if you please, of of the audience. Down in front, another well-understood choir are those that were performing primarily in terms of the music. Could I ask you to note behind is a very large organ. Very large. Off to the left and down to the right is a cello. One more time, may I ask you to notice clearly an understood correctness in their mind of not only music involving both choir, but also that which would involve mechanical instruments of music. They would, in fact, have no problem whatsoever with it. Picture number three. Here's a Church of Christ in Nashville, Tennessee. 80 miles, again, west of us. The Church of Christ, could I draw your attention to what you see on the stage? At least three guitars, a set of drums, a keyboard, three primary performers, all in front. A Church of Christ in Nashville, Tennessee. May I again ask you to notice, we aren't just talking about what certain denominational groups have chosen to do, but this is hitting pretty close to home. I wonder, are they right in permitting this? Is this something to support and endorse? May I at this point say that over the years, many have been quick to say, well, those Church of Christ people don't believe in music and worship. We do believe in music and worship. 
It has to be music that God has authorized. We're going to ask, did He authorize that? If not, again, it is not a matter of our preference. And it is not a matter of our choosing. It's His choice. How about another picture? This one, a church in Texas. Now, please don't confuse the name. It's the Monterey Church of Christ, but it's not Monterey, Tennessee. It's the Monterey Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas. Here is their song leader. It's easy to see he's playing a guitar. I don't know what other mechanical instruments may have been involved in it, but it's clear that he has no problem with, nor the congregation there, in the employment of a mechanical instrument of music in the course of their worship. Maybe one final picture, and then we've said enough about this. Here is the Viroqua Church of Christ in Wisconsin. Now, very far north, and maybe we'd be apt to think perhaps uninterested in something along this line, but do you notice? Again, probably too small to see. At least two guitars. You'll notice off to the right a keyboard, and off to the left what appears to be another mechanical instrument of music. I say all of that to say, we first gave impression to Baptist and Methodist, but now three churches of Christ, pictures who openly advertise their worship involving the employment of mechanical instruments of music. Today, we need to be very sure of why we worship the way we do and if I could borrow the language of 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's within you with meekness and fear. So if some one of our acquaintances or associates or friends ask, why don't you use mechanical instruments of music? We need to be able to offer the correct answers. It's not just because, well, we choose not to. That's not an answer. That's not the right answer. And it's not because, well, that's the way we've always done it. That has nothing to do with it. You see, there is biblical answer. And today, let's study then for the next few moments as to what would be the considerations relative to this. So first of all, the verse, Ephesians 5, 19. You turned there a few moments ago, so let's continue our discussion as we give some thought to the characteristic of it. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now that verse is likely one that's very familiar, and there is much about it that we have heard so many times. However, in light of the fact it is in the Word of God, and it will have much to say, of course, about our discussion today, let's unpack it slowly, systematically, and rather methodically. And so, what about the first three words of the verse? Might we keep in mind that the book of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus. So this was a group of saints, the people who constituted the saved in that city of Ephesus. And to them, Paul wrote, speaking to yourselves. Now, first of all, had that been all that was said, you know we can talk to each other by using normal, ordinary conversation, and nothing is out of the ordinary. But, of course, the verse goes on to identify 
that this speaking involves psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and it involves singing. Thus, he is identifying a characteristic connected to our singing, that is to say, the music of worship. But those opening three words are very significant, aren't they? Because it categorizes and, in fact, details the aspects which is the will of God relative to that music. You'll notice on the slide I've asked you to note the kind of music then that God endorses in worship is music that involves speaking. Information conveyed by words, if you please. Well, that immediately forbids, or at least does not make acceptable certain things. Whistling is not speaking. Humming is not speaking. Yodeling is not speaking. You're not conveying sensible matters in that, in that agency or through that thoroughfare. Therefore, it would not be appropriate for us to start whistling in song. But isn't it interesting, too, that as we appreciate speaking to yourselves, do you highlight almost immediately the rather large consideration connected to this? To yourselves means there's a reciprocal character. One person standing up here and singing in solo cannot meet this description. You're not speaking to yourselves doing that. The kind of description concerning this music is reciprocal where the group is singing, each one participating in that way, and they're each exhorting, edifying, and building up each other. And therefore, a solo thus would not categorize this. That's one person singing, everybody else listening. And that's not the same. That's not reciprocal, if you please, in its thrust. This speaking to yourselves. You'll also notice that other translations render that, speaking one to another. That also has a rather large bearing, doesn't it? Upon some rather modern day application. So when we sing, when we participate in the music which God authorizes and endorses, we are mutually engaging in such a way to directly encourage, exhort, and build up the others. So if I can't hear you, or if I'm not in position to be nearby to observe and witness your participation, then that too could not satisfy this. I can't sit at the house, turn on the computer, and watch somebody else singing, and even if I'm singing, it's not reciprocal. There's no way for you to know whether I am or not, and there's no sense of encouragement available to you. May I suggest that's one of the strongest arguments against the viability of so-called virtual worship. But not only that. Look what else might be observed as it relates again to the development of this verse. Speaking to yourselves, speaking one to another. One of the most remarkable truths connected to singing then is that the music of worship has a very strong teaching component to it. It isn't just music just for the pure enjoyment of it. Now, it's true that beautiful a cappella singing is truly fantastic. It lifts the spirit. It buoys the heart. But may I suggest there's more to it than that. Because you'll notice it's speaking to yourselves. Look briefly with me at the sister passage in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. 
in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Did you notice? As they were allowing the Word of God to dwell in their heart, it was such that it was exemplified by the songs they were singing. They were teaching each other. They were admonishing each other. So when we sing, when we participate in the music God has authorized in worship, we are instructing other people. We are setting before them a viable and powerful example of words consistent with truth, and it encourages all of those who are in that position to appreciate it. Isn't it true then that as Paul developed these points... He sets it before us in continuation. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, that word admonish. That word comes from an original word that literally means to instruct, to warn, or in other cases, to exhort. It's often true, isn't it, that as we sing the songs that are in our songbook, they often have a lovely message of exhortation. Maybe they're about heaven, or maybe they're about the sweetness of forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And those are wonderful. But sometimes there are songs about the terribleness of sin. And they encourage us to reflect on how tragic it is to be without God's forgiveness, to be living separate and apart from Him. Some songs are about that, aren't they? As we sing all of them, isn't it a reminder of the loveliness of the gospel truth? One last thing on that slide. Having to do with that statement I've asked you to notice, the kind of music then that God has stated here that He wants is music that involves speaking to yourselves and music that involves exhortation and music that involves admonishment. So any kind of music that does not satisfy that description then would not be permitted. We listed a few earlier ones today. I suppose it would be time to ask, do you think that a mechanical instrument of music then could meet this description? Hold that thought in mind. We'll return to it in just a moment, but let's journey through the verse a little bit more thoroughly first. Because the next element in Ephesians 5.19 was, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Three particulars, if you please, or categories almost, are then rather quickly identified. What are each of these? Well, first of all, when you think about singing psalms, we know that the book of Psalms in the Old Testament is a book, in fact, that has much to say about lyrics that were sung or utilized in one way or another in service to God in the Old Testament era. There have been those who have said the book of Psalms is the Jewish song book. In fact, we know very well that there were times because the Psalms actually tell us about the nature of certain portions of it that were being sung. Today, you and I thus could easily sing Psalms. I've asked you to consider, for instance, song number 531 in our songbook. We do sing at least that song on occasion. Look at the words of it. Psalm 531. Praise the Lord is the title. Praise the Lord, ye heavens adore Him. Praise Him, angels in the height. Sun and moon rejoice before Him. 
Praise Him, all ye stars of light. Verse 2, Praise the Lord, for He hath spoken, worlds His mighty voice obeyed, laws which never shall be broken, for their guidance He hath made. Verse number 4, Praise the God of our salvation, hosts on high His power proclaim, heaven and earth and all creation, laud and magnify His name. Now at that point, I've just asked you to note the words of that song. Look over to Psalm 148. The 148th Psalm. I believe as you begin to look at some of the verses contained in that psalm, you'll be perhaps appreciable of something very familiar. I won't read nearly the entirety of the psalm, but the first few verses read like this. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise ye Him, all His angels. Praise ye Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all ye stars of light. Praise Him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. You've probably seen it. Psalm 531 is almost identically the words of the opening part of that psalm. So if we were to sing Psalm 531, we are merely rehearsing, almost verbatim, many of the specifications and the lovely statements of Psalm 148. Well, what about the next element in Paul's list? He said not only psalms, but he mentioned hymns. That word hymn refers to a song of praise primarily. No wonder you'll appreciate that song number 532 on the very next page would be a very fair representation of that idea. We sing that one far more often even than number 531, but praise Him, praise Him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer. And the words that follow are an acclamation and an open proclamation of all what has been made available to us through the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a praise of God and His Son. What about the third element? Spiritual songs. That phrase, spiritual songs, it highlights a song that has a spiritual thrust and that has a message centered on truth. Well, surely there would be lots of examples of that one. I chose song number 280. Now again, many could have been chosen, but just look at the wording briefly of song number 280. When you think about a spiritual song, the beauty of this passage perhaps is, is easy to appreciate. I know who holds tomorrow. A constant reminder of the limited time we're in the flesh, the nature of what the purpose of life is supposed to be, and the fact there is a judgment coming. I know who holds tomorrow. We have sung that here in days gone by. Perhaps not all that recently. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry about the future, for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside Him, for He knows what is ahead. That's quite a sentiment, isn't it? Verse number 2. Every step is getting brighter as the golden stars I climb, the golden stairs I climb. Every burden's getting lighter, every cloud is silver lined. 
There the sun is always shining. There no tear will dim the eye at the ending of the rainbow where the mountains touch the sky. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring me poverty. But the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that may be my portion may through the flame or flood. But his presence goes before me, and I'm covered with his blood. Is that true? Are you and I covered with his blood? If not, we can't sing a lot of these songs with any element of hopefulness because they are more a sound of doom than they are of hope. But isn't it true that Paul admonished those in the church at Ephesus to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. What's next on the list? Point number three. In that passage before us, Paul again said, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, singing. We now have come to a rather clear portion of the verse. So far, we have highlighted the reference to songs, told us something about music was involved. But now clearly, we notice he says singing. The kind of music then that God has presented is characterized by the word singing. Now we all know what it means to sing. It is often a clear expression of a happy heart, a merry heart. In fact, didn't the writer in James say in James 5.13, Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. We often sing when we're happy. We feel good and we appreciate a great amount of blessing. Paul here said to that congregation in Ephesus, singing. The Greek word is ado, A-D-O, and the word means sing. It means exactly what you would suggest it means. It means, as you can see on that slide, having reference to music produced, if you please, by the vocal cord and the lips of people. It's what you and I appreciate is characteristic of singing. It is in that light, I might suggest, that the New Testament has some other referring passages to the sweetness of the church presented itself in song. In Hebrews 2 verse 12, I will sing praise to thee in the midst of the church. The church was singing praise. Maybe it is in that connection and that light. So far, we have then seen a reference clearly to singing. But there are some who'd be quick to say, well, can I sing together with the playing of an instrument? After all, isn't it often true that people who play a guitar, they play and sing at the same time? So could I sing so long as I play? Is that still okay? May I again suggest that you keep in mind that the discussion we had noted earlier about admonishment and teaching perhaps leads us now to the critical part of this verse that has been the source of the majority of the controversy. It's the next phrase. The King James reads it like this, singing and making melody. Clearly there's a conjunction here. First is mention of singing, and then there's mention of something else, making melody. And so there has been a presentation for a long time based on the Greek word of what this making melody is. 
So let's take a few moments and develop what that word is and discuss it in some detail. The Greek word that is translated making melody is the word solo, P-S-A-L-L-O. The P is silent, solo, P-S-A-L-L-O. What does that word mean? Does it involve the playing of an instrument? Does it involve those kinds of matters? Please note the definition with care. That word has been the word to occasion such a significant controversial discussion about this subject. The word literally means to twitch, to twang, to pull, as one would do, for instance, on a bowstring or on some other kind of thing. And so there you have the matter. There were those who in years gone by would say, well, there it is. To twitch or to play, well, that's exactly what I'm doing if I'm playing a guitar. That's exactly what I'm doing if I'm playing a piano. Now for the historical consideration. In 1859, at least the first major example that history seems to afford us, at the church in Midway, Kentucky, a gentleman named L.L. Pinkerton introduced a melodeon into the worship of the church there. I'm not saying that was the absolute first one in this so-called movement that was soon to be described in that way, but that certainly is the seemingly most notable one of history. In fact, as I understand it, that little melodeon is still on display at Midway College in the library in Midway, Kentucky. So if you ever take a tour of that place, I'm sure in a glass case there on that campus is a melodeon. And they claim it's the first instrument introduced into the worship service of the Christian church. Somewhat interesting. A melodeon's not a very big instrument, really. But let's go from there. That was 1859. You'll notice then there was only some 41 years left in that century. And within certainly 30 to 35 years, a notable area of division had already developed. A large number of congregations had begun using it. A whole lot of others staunchly said it was not acceptable. By 1906, the division was appreciated fully because the major issues that regarded the members of each cataloged them separately. Notice again how quickly that happened. 1859 to 1906. 46 years. That's all it took. Now, in the years following that, there's a number of other developments. Let me share one of them. By the time we reach the year roughly about 1920, at this point, again, a whole host of usages in terms of congregations choosing to use mechanical instruments of music in their worship. And in fact, a gentleman by the name of O.E. Payne wrote a book. And in that book, the title is this, Instrumental Music is Scriptural. And there was a commission on unity, oddly enough, that was convened in Nashville, Tennessee. And they, in fact, purchased and sent copies of that book to our brethren in Nashville and surrounding communities. And they said, this book settles it. It proves once and for all that this is Scripture. What we're doing is right and what you are demanding of us is not. 
Do you get the feeling? This book had been written, and the claim in it was made, look, this from the Greek settles it. It is okay to have the instrument. In fact, it is something God prefers. Now, here's the rest of that story. So they purchased copies of this book and sent it to our brethren in the Nashville area. And they said, look, here's the answer to it. They challenged our brethren to a debate. And so the most famous debate on this subject was held over the course of six nights from May the 31st, 1923 to June the 5th, 1923. Six nights, and they were, the debate was held each evening in the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Over 6,000 people attended every one of them. The interest was keen. Defending our brethren was none other than N.B. Hardiman. Making the claim for those to use the instrument, the mechanical musical instrument, was Ira Boswell. Night after night, as the debate went onward, it started out like this. Mr. Boswell made the claim, look, Solo in Ephesians 5.19 says to twitch, to pull the bowstring. If this doesn't authorize mechanical instruments of music, what does? Mr. Hardiman very calmly approached the podium and he said, It is true that the definition of that word is to twitch, to twang, to pull the bowstring. But what is being twitched or pulled must always be specified with the word. Otherwise, you do not know what is being twitched or pulled. And so even in classical Greek, it must be supplied what is it one is twitching. Is it the bowstring? Is it the hair? Is it the plumb line? And in every case, it must be specified. And so it is. What has God said is to be twitched? Let's read the verse again. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and soloing, if I may use the Greek word, singing and soloing in your heart. There's the instrument. What's being twitched is the heart. And instantly the entire argument of Boswell and O.E. Payne crumbled to the ground. And it has never been resurrected. I find it amazing that before that debate took place, that book by O.E. Payne was regarded by the brethren who endorsed the instrument. This is the single greatest book ever written on this subject. Are you aware of the fact it was never reprinted? They printed one edition and never again. And if that had settled the argument, don't you think it would have been kept in print all these years? Don't you think it would have been on everybody's bookshelf? Like I said, the argument was crushed. History records that when Hardiman made that debate, and when he presented the argument that he did, those on Boswell's side had to stay up all night long trying to figure out how to answer his argument. They never did figure it out. And today you and I stand not only on solid ground, but on scriptural ground. 
when we say this verse does not authorize mechanical instruments of music because the instrument to be played is the heart. And a mechanical instrument cannot endorse, it cannot admonish, it cannot teach, it cannot do all those other things like speak. And therefore, it is still as wrong today as it was in 1923. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. The Lord has told us the music that He endorses. And so at the bottom of that slide, the fifth and final point is this. It's the phrase that ended the verse. In your heart to the Lord. May I suggest then that in our worship, we do have music, obviously. It's a cappella congregational singing. And we do play instrument, but listen carefully. The instrument we're playing is the heart. It is not a piano. It is not an organ. It is not a piccolo, a flute, a harpsichord, a saxophone, or anything else. The one and only instrument that the New Testament specifies to be played as a part of the music of worship is the heart, and nothing else will satisfy. And so you and I thrill at the thought of serving God in worship as we do so speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And therefore, at the bottom of that slide, isn't it sweet to appreciate then that our primary thrust and goal is for God to be pleased with our worship. We're not near as interested with people liking it. And there's a lot of people, based on those pictures we saw earlier in the lesson today, who've configured their worship in a way to be appealing to what the ears of men may want. That's of no concern to us. God's the primary audience of worship, isn't He? Didn't Jesus say it like this in Matthew 4.10? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. No wonder that in that light, let's conclude our lesson this way. We've devoted our attention to Ephesians 5.19 and have looked in some care at not only the specifics of that passage, but to remind ourselves this is the reason why. It's not that we don't like mechanical instruments of music. We often play them on the radio in our car or house. You may even be skilled enough to play one. But we do not bring it in here to worship because God doesn't want it. He's told us what music He wants, and it's what we've discussed today. The sweetness and the beauty of reciprocal congregational a cappella singing. Today, if, as you and I think about what the gospel has taught on matters like this one, we appreciate that His authority is keen in every matter, and it's our desire to worship Him as He has indicated, and to serve Him in all other ways as well as He also has shown. Today, it might be that someone in this assembly is not a faithful New Testament Christian. That is to say that you've never obeyed the gospel initially, although you know you need to and you know that the Lord died for you. But for whatever reason, at this point, you have not. May I say none of those reasons are good. And if you should pass from the scenes of this life today, where will you spend eternity? That question is too great to ignore. It may be, though, that others who have chosen to walk away from the faith, a life once known to be in harmony with the Word of God, but at this point, you know it's not. But even more to the point, the Lord knows it's not. 
you don't want to continue living that way, surely. Because again, eternity's too long, hell's too miserable, and Jesus is too loving. He wants all of us to adore Him, to serve Him, and to be in harmony with Him. And today, if that would be descriptive of your life, you need to make a decision. Jesus has already made His. He wants you to be saved. He paid the ultimate sacrifice. Now you've got to decide you want to be saved. Why don't you leave the devil behind? Just as the New Testament asserted, get thee behind me, Satan. Leave him behind. Turn your life over in faithfulness and serve the Lord. Today, we'd be honored to pray on your behalf. If you'll confess and repent of those sins, they will be long gone. You will not have to pay for the guilt of them. But today, if that invitation would be needful and appropriate for anyone, we invite you to come. This song of encouragement has been chosen. Don't delay. Come now, would you? While together we stand and sing.